Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and today I'm speaking with Heather Haverleski, whose new essay collection, What If This Were Enough, is out now from Doubleday. Heather is also the author of How to Be a Person in the World and the memoir Disaster Preparedness. She writes the Ask Polly column for New York Magazine and has written for The New Yorker, The Atlantic, The New York Times Magazine, and NPR's All Things Considered, among others. She was also Salon's TV critic for seven years. What if this were enough is another way of asking how to be a person in the world. It's about our cultural obsessions and our romantic motivations, about the ways we relate or don't to each other, and about how we might better embrace the imperfect, beautiful messes that are our lives. So, as you might expect, my conversation with Heather covers writing, but also life in general. We have some real talk about being passive and holding ourselves accountable. We discuss our goal of cultivating weird ant vibes, both as writers and as humans. And we talk about the puzzle of owning the artist identity, the salvation that lies in the work, and finally reaching the place where you write to please yourself. Part of being a writer is believing in what you observe and how you move through the world and believing in the value of good and bad experience as an artist. Well, I really enjoyed this collection. Um, And I wanted to start by just asking, you know, kind of how it came about, because I know that, um, I know that collections can be, essay collections can be very funny things. And and is this a mix of published and unpublished pieces? Um, Yeah, it's, uh, what happened was I sort of, um, I went through a lot of my um, cultural essays um, from the past let's say eight years. Um, and I found that they really they had a lot in common thematically. Um, I also just found myself returning to the same essay over and over again, which is the first chapter of the book about, um, the info- kind of enforced cheer of American culture. Yeah. Uh, and so as an advice columnist, I'd been thinking a lot about um, self-improvement and how people are kind of obsessed and possessed by this idea that they're supposed to be living their best lives, that they're supposed to be getting better and better. And um, and so from those two kind of seeds, I ended up um, starting with a lot of stuff that I, a lot of essays that I'd uh, written before and published in various places and uh, working those into longer chapters um, on kind of bigger, more sweeping subjects, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I wrote a bunch of chapters for the book alone. Uh, they're they're completely new. And then I also wrote some sort of, you know, I wrote some big cultural essays or cultural chapters, essentially. And then I also wrote some personal essays um, to kind of break up the kind of heavy lifting of the the longer cultural essays. Right. Yeah. So do you even think of it this this new product of the book as a as an essay collection at all or you think of it kind of a more cohesive piece that that grew from these different essays um i you know it's always a question right what how you kind of what you call your book and is it essays or is it a single subject um and you know with my first book it was really essays but we sold it as a memoir mm-hmm. uh, and I kind of regretted not calling it essays because the it doesn't really have the, you know, extremely chronological um, 
linear feeling of a memoir. And, um, you know, it's, it's almost like you, you approach it at first, like it's essays. And then by the end of it, you kind of feel like, well, this is really, you know, a treatise in some ways, yeah. you know, like, um, so it, you, it's hard not to be conflicted about it. I mean, I love essays, so I'm happy with it, calling it essays. Um, and I guess it sort of, it lowers expectations a little bit that you're going to be, I mean, it's certainly not like a single subject book in the manner of like a Malcolm Gladwell kind of, you know, mm-hmm. every chapter adds up to the same thing. Um, there's, there's a wide variety of, there are obviously a wide variety of subjects that I tackle in the book. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, mo- a lot of essay collections I feel right now are pretty thematically linked. I mean, that's, it's sort of hard to sell essays that are just disparate and all over the map. Um, so I don't know. I'm, pre- I'm, I'm reasonably satisfied with just standing by the essay collection kind of, um, uh, genre. Yeah. Say. Yeah. And, and this idea that the title communicates, what if this were enough, you know, can you talk a little bit about expanding on what you were just saying about, obviously you think about self-improvement a lot and, and kind of the, the things that you were wanting to ruminate on with, with that sort of being the unifying thread. Sure. Um, I, uh, well, I write an advice column called ask Polly for New York magazine, uh, for their site, the cut. Um, and through the course of, I've been writing that column for six years now. Um, and over the course of answering a lot of letters from, uh, young people, older people, people, from all walks of life, um, I found myself confronting kind of the same sorts of questions over and over again. And, and it, I almost had, I had sort of started to develop the sense that, um, we are poised at a moment in history (laughs) at this moment where, um, there are a lot of different factors making us pretty deeply unhappy and dissatisfied. Um, and one of those factors is, um, obviously social media, the fact that we, you know, I, I would, I would start, I guess, with, uh, self-improvement culture and the psychobabble of our culture at the current moment. There's a lot of talk about what it takes to be happy and how you, how you can be successful and how, you know, how, you know, there are a lot of directives for landing in an amazing magical place where everything is right. And a lot of directives for living your so-called best life. And then when you add to that uh, social media and the sort of received images we have of what a best life looks like through Instagram, through Facebook, um, and how we're all sort of trying to mimic this idea, you know, trying to mimic what we see on celebrity accounts and lifestyle accounts, but we're also sort of unknowingly um, trying to project images that are of a happy life um, out into the world. And we all are starting to kind of almost see ourselves as products that need to be polished and need to be sort of appreciated. And, and, and there are all these, obviously, the gig economy dictates that we have a lot of pressures. Our personal social media accounts double as, um, as sort of marketing tools. Um, it's almost like we're marketing our personalities to other people at this moment in time. Um, and then on top of that, uh, we carry around in our pockets these little windows into a million different disasters and catastrophes and failures of the state and bad situations. Um, and so we're sort of constantly toggling between trying to be better and 
feeling like nothing will change the bad state of the world that we're in. Um, so there's just a lot of anxiety that's kicked up by the way that we live at this moment. And, um, as an advice columnist, I think a lot about what's wrong, um, and what we can do to sort of feel better in our own skin. But I also have been writing cultural essays for, um, decade, you know, 23 years now. And, um, and so I have a lot of thoughts about what it is that put us in the, you know, how we landed here and, and how we can get out of this particular kind of puzzle. It's a lot of different that, you know, it's a lot. It, the, the book is a lot. It's like, I come at the same problem from a lot of different angles, but I really wanted to sort of, um, create a, a collection of essays that move in the direction of not just observing what is wrong, but also point in the direction of some possible remedies for our current situation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting thinking about that, um, with the, in the context of of Ask Polly, because it really is in both cases, it seems to me this kind of very astute sort of psychological assessment that you're doing, you know, it's just like the scale has kind of changed a little bit. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, almost too much, ironically, with the title, what if this were enough? And it's, I mean, but, but it was hard to ignore how many different levels of the culture sort of, uh, mirror and reflect and also seem like an influence on our current levels of dissatisfaction and our sort of feeling of our experience of ourselves as, um, not right and not good enough. And also, our experience minute to minute as distracted, um, anxious animals, um, which I think is exacerbated by social media and exacerbated by media at large. Um, and then what, you know, my aim was to sort of figure out a way through that and, and understand, you know, I mean, every week when I get a letter, a lot of times I, I kind of hit the wall, you know, once you analyze the problem, um, there, there's a next step that's necessary, which is not just, and because I get very existential questions and sort of sweeping questions that aren't just like, should I get divorced or, you know, should I kick out, kick my mother-in-law, um, out of my, you know, out of my house and, you know, sort of the dear Abby things, um, because I get these sort of multi-layer heavy questions, um, I, I hit this point where I sort of have to figure out how to kind of, you know, I have to connect with the problem and figure out what, how do you feel your way towards a solution? And part, and part of that is sort of like what I aim for is to point people back toward their own instincts and their own heart, like to ask them to look inside and figure out what is right for them. Um, I think that my, my advice used to be a little bit more, um, directive, like do this, then do this, then do this. And now I, f I feel like I'm at a juncture where a lot of the time I end up saying what works for you and what doesn't and what, you know, what will work for you and how can you believe in yourself again? And how can you trust your instincts again? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's something that to me is super exacerbated by social media. And I kind of don't realize like, I, or I hadn't realized, you know, for a really long time, kind of how much I not quite internalized, but you know, you, all these voices are coming at you and you give them, I give them so much authority, you know? Yep. 
even yeah. and and kind of just like across the board and then you're and then you do end up with this place of like well what who am I what do I what do I do yeah i mean it's part of it is just that there's too there's too much to process mm-hmm. um we're not really built to um metabolize as much information and as many stories and as many kind of tragic twists of fate um, as we receive at any given on any given day. Um, But there's also this, like you said, there's this kind of like, you're just, you're, you're ingesting so many different opinions. And even if your, your feed or your choice of what you mute and don't mute or who you friend and don't friend, even if those choices add up to sort of a homogenous or sort of likable, loosely interesting uh, model of humans and voices, um, there's, there are still all these ways that you um, naturally conform to what you're hearing or try to kind of live within the confines of the expectations of the how you imagine what other people expect of you. Um, you live within the confines of other people's fantasies about what they can become and who they are becoming and what they want. And they're just, overall, there are too many voices and they're coming at you in an unstructured way. So many that it's just very difficult to feel like you remember how to find your heart and trust your own instincts anymore. I mean, I, one of the things that I end up telling people over and over again is, you know, if you want to, if you don't want to feel like a cork on of the way on the ocean, you know, mm-hmm. in a storm, um, you have to have a relationship to yourself and you have to understand the things that are working on you mm-hmm. or the things that are kind of pushing on you at all times, emotionally and intellectually. And also you have to understand the things you value and hold dear. Um, and you know, there just aren't that many sort of reminders in our world to check in with what you really love to understand it really well. And also to, um, to sort of trust, um, that your perception of the world is accurate. Right. And then to move forward based on your values. I think that when you take in so much, so many directives from other people and so much noise and so much information, you end up in this strange kind of like um, bird-like state where you perceive other people's reactions to you in the same way that you perceive social media. You take in too much information from other people, essentially, which is a problem among sensitive people, among women. You know, a lot of us have this problem of like, I can see what people think of me while it's unfolding. I don't need that information. Um, But you make these adjustments in real time to what you perceive instead of feeling grounded in how you know how you want to proceed regardless of how you're perceived, regardless of the feedback that you're getting, regardless of the messages that are muddled together online. Um, and it's hard to do that. It's just not a nat- that is not a natural way to move through the world at this moment. It's very natural at this moment to be incredibly jittery and neurotic mm-hmm. because there's just too much going on, you know? Yeah. You're like a, a little bird in a giant jungle full of predators, essentially. You know, there's, there are too many noises. There are too many threats um, to your well-being. And you can't 
you know, all your, I think that what a lot of people are left with is this feeling that they need to seem calm and seem on top of it and seem like they're doing great and seem like they're reaching for their best life. But it's really, really difficult to figure out what your best life even is or to figure out what you want to be or to figure out who you are now and accept that person when you're constantly, um, pretending that you're already there. Yeah. And there are pressures within social media to pretend that you're, that you've arrived to pretend that you're doing great. Um, and that stuff spills out into, um, I think human interactions as well. We're all kind of being molded by the same sort of bad, you know, poisonous forces at this, at this moment. You know, I was in preparation for a conversation. I was revisiting um, How to Be a Person in the World, which is your collection of uh, some selected Ask Polly columns. And and this phrase really struck me. And it's just in the author's note. But I think, you know, this was just such a such a true thing that I had never seen kind of articulated so succinctly. But you say... Um, you know, did I want to use this column to rail against the scourge of passivity and avoidance in modern relationships? And I think that a lot of that passivity and avoidance is also playing out on that cultural scale too. And it's like, you're, you're, ta- you're reacting so much, you know, you, you spend so much time taking in and then it is really hard to turn on that mechanism inside yourself that like shuts the valve and like generates on its own. Yeah. I mean, there, it's, it's almost like, um, there's this feeling that you're failing at the same game over and over again. Yes. Um, like you, which I mean, I mean, if, if we're kind of talking about like making friends and dating and, you know, trying to find a, a career that you like, it's sort of like, um, you know, you show up and it's actually very normal to have some jobs that you hate and then you quit them or, and to date a lot of people or to meet a lot of people who are not even close to remotely, uh, good for you or right for you, um, who don't appreciate you and you don't appreciate them. You're not built to appreciate each other. Um, and these are not, uh, these are not like verdicts on your success as a human Mm -hmm. or, you know, you're, you're not on some bad track when you say this isn't right. Um, I'm not connecting with this person. You know, that's not like, you're not getting useful information on how to change when you're just sitting down across from someone who makes no sense to you and you don't make any sense to him. But we have this tendency because it's sort of like everything is gaming now, you know, like everything we do is like, get it right. You know, you got to win, you got to, you know, life hacks. How do you navigate this and, and win it all and make everyone like you? And, and that's obviously, that's not, you can't even find your true path. You can't find your correct career that, that, that you love. You can't find your passions. You can't uncover any passions. If your whole thing is sort of like playing, literally like swatting things away and trying to do the best you can, you know, mm-hmm. it's not, that's not a, that's not a recipe for, um, connecting with anyone, first of all. Um, but it's also definitely a recipe for taking every bit of rejection that you perceive in the, in the world or taking every loss, right. And making it about how you are failing, you know, as a, as an individual, how you need to master your emotions more and how you, you know, you need to like 
you, you, you're basically a disappointment and you're, you know, you're casting your many uh, embarrassment of riches out into, uh, you know, you're just, you, 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 I, I mean, I, it's like, it, there's no way to overstate how, um, how guilty people feel for not playing the game the right way mm-hmm. right now, you know? And, and, and yet I feel like we're just all dominated by these kind of reject small and large rejections every second of the day. Um, I don't know about you, but I like, I text with today. I feel like I've texted with like 10 people, um, while I was meeting a deadline mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, I had two calls before yours and I was, I was walking on my treadmill. That's actually a good thing because, um, it keeps me, you know, a little bit calm Mm -hmm. in a a situation where I just, my neck would, you know, I'm 48 years old. My neck would start hurting and I'd start falling apart. Um, but I basically was like, you know, doing juggling all these different things. And even the small, I mean, I'm a person who the smallest sort of, um, fading out or, you know, a curt response. I mean, I am getting to the point where I understand professional humans to be busy mm-hmm. individuals. And, uh, I can actually, even though I'm in my house, I can kind of get into the flow of like, okay, conversations are short. Don't get into a lot of detail with somebody who's sounds busy. You know, I, ha- I've, I've, you know, I've been working from home for 20 years, so I ha- always run the danger of being too long winded. Um, but I can take us the smallest, like unanswered texts, oh, yeah. you know, from like a friend or, you know, an email that seems a little bit, you know, a little bit curt, you know, and I can build an idea out of that, yes. that I've done something wrong. Um, not only that, but, um, I I've been telling this story on my book tour. It came up randomly and I can't remember why it came up, but, um, I, I had a dog that lived to be 14 and a half who died at the end of June. Mm. Um, and she was like just the greatest dog. I love, loved her. And when she died, I went out partially in a, a fit of crazy, but also also just a, as a way of like, okay, let's, let's move forward. Let's not get, you know, kind of for my kids not to feel terrible for too long. Yeah. Um, I went out and adopted another puppy. Um, and the puppy looked a little bit like my dog that died, but she was really small, but she had the same di- totally different breed, but had the same coloring, like uh, yellow with a white stripe on her nose, which, you know, it's actually kind of hard to find dogs with that coloring, but I sort of have a type, right? Like I just loved this dog so much. And I'm like, you know what? I just love yellow dogs, a little white on their nose. And I just want to find another dog like that. So I, so I adopted this dog and it died. So anyway, the dog had all kinds of immune problems. It was beyond distemper. It was like, they did tests and they were like, no, this dog can't can't make it. But then the rescue lady was like, no, we want to give her more of a chance, which, you know, she was paying the bills at that point Mm -hmm. because I had said from the beginning, like, I think this dog is, you know, after a day, the dog started coughing and I was like, I think this dog is sick. Anyway, it was a draw. It was a drama. That's not the main story, but the dog died. We were kind of devastated. It was terrible. And we, it was sort of on the heels of my other dog dying. So then, you know, we go on this trip across the country and back, well, you know, two months go by, we come back to our come back home after a month of traveling and I'm like, okay, I can't put it off any longer. We, I must adopt a new dog. Mm -hmm. And I find another dog that's yellow with a white, 
<laughs> white nose. And, um, and you know, I bring the dog into my vet and the vet that treated the puppy that died wasn't my normal vet, but she, um, wrote me a really nice note and was really concerned for my kids and sad for me that I'd been through my first dog's death. And then I had this puppy that died. So when I saw her behind the counter at the vet, I, I had taken the puppy to my regular vet, but I saw this other vet and I said, Hey, how are you? And she looked over at me and she just flinched like her book, her face kind of crumpled. And so I was thinking like, Oh my God, she's, she's seeing that I have another puppy and uh-huh. she thinks, it's a little weird. And so, of course, I have to say the thing that she's thinking. And I'm like, I, I got a new puppy. This puppy looks a little bit like the other puppy. Yeah. And she just goes, and like just kind of grimaces in pain and walks away without saying like, congratulations. Oh, my God. And oh, my God, I'm so happy for you, you know, and I'm like, and, I, and I'm standing there and I'm thinking like, Oh my God. She thinks that I'm just like adopt. It's, it was as if she thought I was adopting puppies and killing them. Right, right, right. Like, I just keep adopting the same yellow puppy <laughs> and then I kill it. Um, even though with the first one, I waited 14 and a half years to kill it. Um, but I walked out of there and you know, my old self would have said, Oh no, I literally am a person who's adopting puppies and killing them because I, I, as women in particular, I think that we, hold ourselves account- accountable to other people's misperceptions of us. Oh my you know, God, we don't 100%. Just, um, hold ourselves accountable to how we are actually perceived. We hold ourselves accountable. If someone misunderstands us, we actually believe that we must have done something wrong and maybe we are as much a piece of garbage as they actually understand us to be, as they misperceive us to be. I was thinking that when you started, when you started describing this condition, like how quickly we are ready to just to blame ourselves and to be yeah. like, what have I failed at? It's like, it's like you, like speaking for myself, sometimes after the fact, I'm like, did I want that to happen? You know, it's just like that pattern is so, that path is so well-worn of just like, okay, well you fucked this up somehow immeasurably. So like, how did you do that? Yeah. If the reaction is bad, um, what did you screw up? You know, it goes back to that kind of video game culture thing where it's like, oh, I, I must've screwed something up because this person is not even happy for me. She's disgusted and repelled by, you know, me. And so I walked out of the the vet with my new puppy, which by the way, this new puppy is like, you know, the old puppy was going to be, you know, maybe max 15 pounds. This puppy is going to be like uh, maybe a hundred pounds, like completely, <laughs> completely different breeds. Um, but I walked out and, and, and I was like, you know, Oh, I wonder what's going on with her. You right. know, like instead of turning it on myself and just eating it for the rest of the day, I had this feeling like, Jesus, what is up with that woman? Like what's what is what is the what it's a mystery. It's kind of interesting. Like who would react that way? Why would she assume the worst and why would it make her so uncomfortable? Um, which I think, you know, when you can get to that place where you actually can let it go, right? And you don't eat every rejection. It's this freeing thing where you realize, because I think actually there's a point in your life where you say, where people say to you all the time, just drop it, just leave it alone. Mm -hmm. But you haven't solved the essential problem 
yet. So you, and you don't understand why you can't drop it. And it actually makes you hold on to it more tightly when people say drop it. Yes. Because you're trying to solve a problem. You're trying to solve your own mystery, which is why do I care if everyone else around me manages not to care? Why do I care so much? You know, like what is going on with me? And so I, you know, I feel like one of the things I'm trying to do with this book is to help people unravel why it is that some of us feel so broken and what we can, you know, what we can do about it. Where is the way out? Because, you know, there is this route of emancipation, actually, where you do drop things pretty easily um, and you don't blame yourself for everything. And it's just, it's not as easy as just hearing, stop blaming yourself for everything. You right. know, like it's much more complicated than that. And it's important to sort of honor what a complex problem it can be to solve. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that like, you know, you, you've written about this for sure, but it's like, there's also that piece of it that like, it doesn't occur to you to have, or it kind of can't occur to you to have compassion for the other person until you develop the compassion for yourself. So until you are asking that question of like, why do I care in like a, you know, in a non-judgmental way. And I'm just like, what, what's going on with me that that is bothering me? Like it's never, you're going to be, you know, it took me a long time to, to realize that with myself. And I mean, I still think this is definitely a process for me for sure. But that idea that like, there is actually something very egotistical in all of in all of that and seeing and seeing everything as a reflection of you. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, but I, but I also think that, well, yeah, I mean that it's a, it's, I would say more that it's a, um, it's an illusion, Mm. right? Um, because we're told that we're really ego driven to be so fixated on solving this basic problem of perception and basic problem of like internalizing the negative feedback we get. Um, but I really feel like if, I mean, it's kind of, a, I mean, there's ba- a balance to everything, but I feel like as I stop um, ingesting other people's confusion about me and, you know, and it, you're right, it starts with compassion for myself and then I have more compassion for other people. And so I don't necessarily blame them for being confused about me as much right. as I used to. Right. But, but once you stop ingesting that, I, I kind of feel like for me, you could almost say that I am more daring. I, I dare to be more egotistical than I've ever been in, in, in a way. I mean, egotistical is a weird word, but mm-hmm. I, I would say that I'm, I'm more um, interested in taking myself seriously these days. Yes. And I, and I, and I kind of see how, I was so allergic to that and so avoidant around anything that would make me sound self-serious, um, anything that would make me sound too arrogant. And I don't, I've sort of reached a place where I realize that my thinking is clearer. My communication is clearer. Um, I'm nicer to people. I'm calmer around other people because I do take myself seriously now. Like I don't have trouble stringing together a sentence in the same way I used to because I'm not constantly auditing every single thing that I say. Um, and I and I don't mind sounding a little bit arrogant when I talk. You know, like I mean, I did. I've so I finally arrived at a place where I'm like, you know, I have a lot of things to say, a lot of them. And instead of seeing that as like 
oh, Jesus, you know, I'm going to screw this up because I'm going to talk too much, um, which is how I used to see it a few years ago. Um, I don't know. It's easier to get to the point, too. You know, you just feel like, you know, I got a message. Right. Yeah. No point beating around the bush about it. Yeah. And also, you know, the shame, the shame that's kicked up uh, uh, for me um, in doing anything that feels ego driven. Mm -hmm. um, I'm really trying to kind of get a handle on that because, Mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously there are a lot of people who are very successful who walk around tooting their own horn constantly. And as, as allergic as I am to sort of that sound and the way that it sort of echoes through our culture at this moment, I also think that a lot of women in particular, that is not really their problem. Yeah. Their problem is really actually that they can't just own uh, and own what they have and own what they're doing and take up a little bit of space without worrying about how offensive it might seem to someone in the universe, you know? Hey, it's Courtney. If you get as much out of listening to WMFA as I do out of producing it, and I hope that you do, then I have a favor to ask. Would you consider becoming a patron? Think of this like those fundraising drives they do on NPR, only with less Ira Glass. Okay, with no Ira Glass. Patreon is a digital platform that allows listeners to support creators and their work directly. When you become a patron, you pledge a monthly amount, and in return, I give you thank you gifts like shoutouts, transcripts, and bonus segments. Choose from my pledge tiers or donate a custom amount that works for you. All of you who do the freelance hustle will hear me when I say that literally every dollar counts. Platforms like Patreon are so important for independent creatives like me and for growing shows like WMFA. By helping me continue to make WMFA, you're not only supporting a passion project, you're also supporting a mini-economy of independent creatives, from audio editors to graphic designers. Your money goes directly to the people behind the show. It's kind of like shopping at the farmer's market for your ears. To pledge, visit www.patreon.com backslash WMFA podcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com backslash WMFA podcast. And thanks so much. I truly appreciate it. You know, for all of the sort of negative poisonous things that I mentioned at the start of this conversation, I do, I do really feel that a lot of women, um, let's just say ages 20 to, you know, 70, uh, I mean, <laughs> all of them, right? I guess that's all the women. Um, I really feel like we're, you know, thanks in part to the, you know, God-given grace of the Kavanaugh hearings, among other things, mm-hmm. um, the Me Too movement, all this stuff. Um, I, I do think we're kind of turning a corner from trauma and just shared um, despair and, you know, this weird ride of, like, empowerment mixed with shame, mixed with have we gone too far? You know, I mean, everyone, the thing that I think doesn't come across to outsiders in this kind of fight is that all women are on a roller coaster about almost every single piece of this movement. I mean, we are constantly, I mean, it's kind of funny because we're paranoid that we seem like we're not auditing or noticing or, you know, or examining the details of each particular situation. But I mean, I, you can't talk to a woman and not hear a very nuanced, thoughtful, layered 
take on every single thing that's happened since the Me Too movement began. I mean, everyone is exa- everyone has a changing relationship to this very volatile, crazy, big thing that's happening. Um, I, I, but I do feel like, you know, in spite of the fact that it's sort of like we all underwent the same trauma on the same day when Kavanaugh was, you know, you know, um, interviewed briefly and then confirmed later soon after um there's i do think that we're kind of like turning into this era where women are actually saying to each other you know what would be huge you know like (laughs) i have a great idea and we're gonna do this together um i feel like i've heard that from a lot of women and i actually feel it in myself like i think that i'm taking myself more seriously just over the course of the past year and that probably sounds like again it probably sounds like what why you know like, why would you want that but um but yeah it feels like it really feels like something is bubbling up and we're not going to take no for an answer at this moment both in terms of policy but also in terms of just individual empowerment to align ourselves with each other and create things that matter to us, you know? Absolutely. And it reminds me a lot of, of one of the pieces in What If This Were Enough, and I apologize, the title is not coming to mind, but where you write about your mother and the idea of, of women as capable and being capable versus this, like, kind of genius who gets to be scattered. And I mean, like, this is definitely something we see a ton, you know, and there's the kind of art monster and then the wife who's like following behind, making sure that everything like works and, you know, everybody gets paid and all of that. But yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. just like that idea of like, well, women have always, because they've had to been able to just get shit done. So at this yeah. point it's like, okay, well we've got, you know, that's implementation is not going to be our problem, you know, or I mean like external yeah, yeah. forces aside, of course, which are, which are not for nothing, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think that um, there's there is this very like um, when you add the capable to and the practical, you know, you start with capable and practical, and you add the ability to dream, you know, yeah, and and not just that, but believe in the possibility that maybe you were brilliant all along. Mm -hmm. Which you know, I mean, I think a lot of people, a lot of women and people of color in particular, um, really need to, you know, to, we, we have to find some corner of the world where we can take hold of the belief that all of the possibilities under the sun could be ours and, and to believe in the possibility that, oh my God, you know, I've been silenced and, you know, and shuffled aside over and over again, but it actually had nothing to do with the quality of what I was trying to say or, or what I was creating. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sort of, I don't think that I, I understood that at a personal level, um, for years and years and years. I mean, I, I, you know, I was always a feminist, but there's a way of that. I think that I'm, you know, understanding at a deep level, how important it is to understand yourself as capable of greatness kind of, you know, um, to use a very like kind of bad over applied word. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it's, uh, it's sort of this beautiful moment, um, in the culture actually. Um, and I see, I kind of see it uh, in an, on an interpersonal level with other women. And it's really nice. It's like, it's sort of all I want to do is just talk to smart women about what they, what they're dreaming about. I mean, it's, it's sort of, um, I mean, honestly, it's also just, there are days when you believe, right. And then there are other days when you're like, Jesus, we're never going to get out of this. Like, it's just, 
So we, but we like to imagine together that the world is changing. And then you hit a wall where you're like, oh my God, you know, like I thought everyone was with us. Right. Um, and we're right back to zero. So, you know, it's, I think the one, one thing that Rebecca Tracer said, I did an event with her um, last week. Mm. Uh, and one thing that she kept saying was, you know, we have to understand our history really well. We have to understand the history of the various movements within feminism. And we have to understand, we have to place ourselves on a long timeline. Yes. And, 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 and notice that, you know, we're fighting for things that, you know, we might not see the rewards to these things. We actually have to throw ourselves into a fight that, you know, maybe only our daughters or their daughters, if they're, you know, if the, if the earth survives, right. see the benefits of. Yeah. That's pretty dark. It's pretty dark. <laughs> I have, I have, I have enjoyed that this has, that this era has allowed Rebecca Tracer to just really shine because she's so incredible. Oh my God. She's so great. And she, oh my God, if you have a chance to see her talk in person, um, I mean, she just is really on fire. You know, she just really, she can, she has a lot of different, um, layers of understanding of our current predicament. And mm -hmm. she's just, it just comes flying out of her mouth. Like she talks fast, real fast. Um, but it's amazing. It's just inspiring. I mean, I really feel like she's, her work is really exciting. She just is, she's a leader, you know, she's mm -hmm. a really actually a leader. It's weird because someone said to me recently, journalists are becoming advocates, you know, um, mm -hmm. and sort of, and, and I do kind of write about this in my book, how a lot of, a lot of these roles that used to be sort of just observational or more mm -hmm. neutral have become, and a lot of ideology is becoming more and more kind of fundamentalist, uh, and there are things to fear about that, I guess. Um, it's, it's a little bit, there are times when you just feel like, am I having a political discussion or am I talking to members of two different cults? Like it's right, very, right. you know, cr nutty, um, and extreme, but, um, but yeah, but, but by the same token, you, you know, you have these moments where you think, my God, I'm, I'm sort of finding refinding, relocating my religion, you know, like, mm -hmm. things are, you know, the world really depends on some of this stuff. It's, it feels like the stakes are, have never been higher. You know, it's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's interesting because as a, as someone who, you know, I was born in 1970, I grew up in the seventies, you know, you, you, if you have boomer parents, if you're in our culture at that time, like you get fed over and over again, the importance of 1968, you know, it's like mm -hmm, 1968, mm -hmm. the year that, you know, everything was crazy and things were changing. Right. And, and you have this idea like, oh, that was the year that we made all kinds of strides that we don't, you know, we'll never go backwards from the civil rights movement. And, you know, Martin Luther King peacefully, you know, friend to the white man peacefully came and, you know, enlightened us. And he's a saint taught about in classes and now in elementary school. Um, but then, the, you know, the reality of how sort of disdained and disregarded he was, Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. was um, in 1968 and how much sort of violence and ugliness was unfolding in 1968. Um, but also, I just, I spent a lifetime just thinking, well, things will never be as exciting as they were in 1968, you know? <laughs> and actually, I feel like we are actually <laughs> having a year it feels like, you know, that it, it feels like watching old reels from 1968, you know, it's mm -hmm. just, things are nuts. And it's, 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 we, we all feel 
many, many, many people feel oppressed by this moment, but there is potential here too. You know, there's personal potential and there's, there's potential for our society to reform itself. This is all also um, reminding me of what I think might have been my favorite piece in this collection, which is, um, and I don't know if this is if this is as it appeared in the Atlantic totally, um, but the the essay haunted about Shirley Jackson and the way that we talk about women and portray female complicated female characters versus complicated male characters. Um, and I really loved a part of it was just I love Shirley Jackson, but also I was like I was really. It had never occurred to me, and it was such a light bulb thing um, when you write when you wrote it. How many, how much we traffic in the usage of the word "girl," like how everybody gets reduced to, and like in titles of shows, and like I just had kind of, you know, even though even though I know that you know you you hear people talk about the kind of like dead girl phenomenon, like all that sort of things, but just the the how pervasive that word really is, and the ramifications of that, and then the yeah. way the way that women where a male character might be flawed in a way that makes him more compelling or a richer example of humanity. A woman is flawed in a way that she needs to hurry up and fix because she's a mess. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's in a man, it's charming to say, um, I love beer. I loved beer, you know, (laughs) Jesus Christ. Yeah. And, and also to, to get mad, to get angry or to get sad. It's, it's like the room goes hush and Mm -hmm. everyone says, my God, you've made a man, a man angry. You must have really screwed up. Whereas, you know, or you made a man almost cry. Jesus, why, what are you doing to this poor guy? Whereas um, when it's a woman who's behaving that way, it's like, what's wrong with her? Why is she here? And why do we have to listen to her? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So the, that essay is actually, um, is, it began with the Shirley Jackson piece that I wrote for the Atlantic. And then I wrote some of the pieces of that, um, for the New York times magazine Mm. about the TV aspects of it, Mm -hmm. the girls and uh, Mary Tyler Moore, and also the crazy, crazy ladies on TV. Um, and it came together in this sort of mammoth, (laughs) you know, treatise about how we encounter women, um, in our culture in a lot of different, you know, as based on a lot of different artifacts, um, of our culture. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, the, the idea that um, the word girl is so beloved um, and the, the fact that we sort of like celebrate girls naturally, yay, twirl for me, you're amazing, look how pretty. Um, and we treat them, I mean, I, you know, when I read, I hadn't read Shirley Jackson um, except for the lottery um, and I think that was it. And I read like seven books in a row for that piece mm-hmm. um, and I, could, I just couldn't believe how beautifully she traces that trajectory from a celebrated, precious, adored, fresh being, um, toward, you know, towards something very different than that towards like, you know, the sum of all your bad choices, you know, because you can't really look at a middle-aged woman in our culture that isn't it isn't some kind, doesn't stand as some kind of parable, you know, some kind of symbol of a bad choice. You know, you are 
totally independent and so you're lonely, you're single and that's bad, you're married and you're just giving in and you're just, you know, basically a concubine of some kind, you are, you know, you're old and that's a moral failure to ever allow yourself to grow visibly old. You're childless and that's a shame or you're a mother and that's all that you are. Yes. And you're, you know, I mean, I'm, I, I used to be very aware of the childless thing and I, I made these t-shirts that said childless whore on them (laughs) at one point. Um, because I was just, I think someone referred to me as a childless whore uh, in the comment section in salon. And then I, wow. I was just, yes, childless whore. That's what I am. Perfect. Um, and then when I, once I had kids, I became more acutely aware of what, um, just how sort of our associations with mothering are, <laughs> are, are sort of, but at once, um, honorable and, and, you know, we put them on a pedestal just like the, uh, Madonna, but also totally demeaning and, mm-hmm. um, and pathetic and all you do is drive a minivan around picking people up from soccer practice all day. Um, and just decent, you know, asexual, like you're mm-hmm. just automatically sort of this gross, um, uh, this gross thing. Like the, the term MILF wouldn't even exist if we didn't assume all mothers were disgusting, right? Like that's true. Whoa, yeah. An exception, a mother you want to fuck. Like, well, why would you want to do that? She must be smoking hot. Um, yeah, it's, it's all bad is, you know, <laughs> should be the, the title of my book about being a woman in our culture. It's just, you can't, you can't get it right no matter what you do. And, and, you know, that's once you kind of, I mean, the, the glory of that is once you sort of see that close up and once you've been through a few iterations of that, as I have, you know, I have kids and now, and now I'm getting old and I'm going to find out, you know, I'm going to discover the next terrible fold of this story. Um, but, but once you see that it's, it's sort of freeing because you realize like whatever associations there are with anything I do, you know, you always think about how as women, I think we think a lot about how we're perceived and how the things we do stand for different things. Like if I dye my hair blue now, I'm just going to seem like I'm trying too hard to be some kind of rock star or some kind of goth. Or, but if I don't, if I get some kind of Republican hairstyle, you know, as my hairdresser calls it, (laughs) Republican hair, um, you know, I guess highlights and a bob, you know, are bad because that makes you a Republican lady. Um, you know, whatever you just, you can't make a choice without thinking about how someone is going to think you're a loser. And, and eventually you just realize like, I'm going to be a loser no matter what I do. I might as well choose like a big loud form of loser to be because, um, you know, it depends on what, what makes you feel good. You know, like I'm starting, I think, I think that I kind of chose like to wear a uniform and kind of be, I just wanted to fade into the background and kind of be invisible when I was at the full, I had the full force of, you know, my youth and my looks and my personality and whatever else. And now that I'm sort of like, whatever, I'm, I'm getting older. It's, I, I still look great as far as I'm concerned. But, um, but I, I, I sort of feel like I want to be kind of loud and too big and yes. too weird. Um, because I just, I don't know, it seems fun. Like who, as long as, as long as I'm screwing up no matter what, I might as well have fun with it. I'd sort of, I'm sort of a little bit tired of hiding, you know? Absolutely. 
um, one of the best compliments I feel like I've ever gotten was from uh, my aunt. We were at this family function, and I don't and I don't have kids. I don't intend to have kids. Um, and and but my cousin, it was the baptism of my cousin's first first child, and and um, and I said to my aunt, you know, who who I've always really looked up to and had a really close relationship with, and she doesn't have any children either, and. Um, I was like, you know, I really just want to cultivate the, like, weird ant thing. And she was like, oh, I think you're already there. <laughs> it's just, like, <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, I mean, that's my vision. That's my vision board, too, weird ant. I mean, you know, I, I unfortunately, when you have kids, it's sort of like, well, guys, um, I, I need to warn you. Uh, <laughs> you're going to have the normal ant and the weird mom, maybe. Yeah, I mean. Kids have a real stake in you, you know, staying very normal, you know. They, they, oh, God, yeah. Because it's bad enough just to be, you know, a kid and to want to, you know, especially in middle school, you want to seem ultra normal no matter what. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm threatening to uh, put a little, you know, mess with that. But luckily, you know, fashion is in a place where, yeah, you know, you can kind of get away with anything at yeah. this moment. And, uh, you know, I mean, li- listen to me. I'm obviously still conflicted about it, but <laughs> I'll figure it out. I just feel like weird, weird ant is a good way of navigating the world in general as a, as a woman because um, I have a weird aunt too, and she gets to say whatever the fuck yep. she wants at all times. And sometimes it's a little bit obnoxious. She doesn't have to, you know, yeah. adhere to the rules that the rest of us are adhering to. But by the same token, it's like if you're a person who's having to hang out with a family, you know, mm-hmm. on vacations and stuff, if you're like, well, I guess, you know, they keep inviting me to go with their family. Right. So I guess I'll go. It's sort of like you're not part of that system and you should actually be able to question the system and be a freak on the outside of the system and not not beholden to the system, right? It's like, there's got to be some advantage there because, you know, you're, you're still showing up with what you, with what you have, you know? And it's like, and, and people within a system have to, have to be, you know, respectful of someone who's outside of it, you know, like as my, as difficult as it is, because when you're inside the system, it's hard, you know, you're like, Oh, so many rules within this effing system and then you know someone on the outside's like oh uh, i'm over here doing whatever the fuck i want right you know god damn it let me over there it's kind of like writing in a way that that same feeling of like just being kind of forever on the periphery of things yeah yeah as a writer you mean yeah working working from home yes yeah Yeah. especially working from home yeah 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 (laughs) i mean you know it's i've i've been saying to my husband lately like I feel like I finally sort of learned how to get along with people as well as people who go to offices every day, but it took a lot of careful study, you know, like, Mm. because if you work from home for years and years and years, um, you do kind of get weirder and weirder, you know, you get really out of step with how, just like the basics of small talk and, and communication, signing off, signing on, like it's, it's just, uh, it becomes more and more like, wait, how do I do this again? I can't remember. I haven't done this in a long time. Um, but it's, but it's also, I feel like a really good place creatively to be mm-hmm. because you, you, you kind of come at the world from an unfrozen caveman position at all times. And we were like, 
what in the world? How is this real? Right. You know, why, how do people live this way? And when you're in the world all the time, you sometimes forget how bizarre um, the systems you move within are. Not to put to make it too abstract. But yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. definitely. It's I don't know. It's a there's a lot of there are, there's a lot of good there and a lot of bad. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. It's like you know, it's a it's a it's a challenge. This is way back. This is from an Ask Polly, and this is. Um, a paragraph that like, I feel like I will need to reread every day for the rest of my life. Um, and you're writing, you're responding to somebody, um, stuck phoning it in is the sign off that they use. Um, and it's, it's a person who has aspirations for writing and, and for comedy, but kind of is just sort of like floating along. And, and as part of your advice to them, um, you say this beautiful thing, you say, what matters is you all alone at your desk at five in the morning. I write this from my own desk at five in the morning, my favorite place, a place where I know who I am and what I'm meant to accomplish in this life. Savor that precious space. That space will feel like purgatory at first because you'll realize that it all depends on you. That space will feel like salvation eventually because you'll realize that it all depends on you. And and I want to just ask you about the like your personal movement between those two mindsets, which is like the salvation thing is like so aspirational to me right now. You know, I think I think you're I, I see how you're right, but like I think that's just such a learned and such a such a putting in the hours kind of mental transition to make maybe. And I, I wanted to just start by asking you about that and what that looks like for your own practice. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I haven't, I definitely haven't always been there. Um, there was a, there were times, I don't know. I mean, I, I've had, uh, a lot of staff jobs as a writer. Um, so I've always, most of my life as, you know, a working person, I've had to produce, um, words (laughs) words mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, you know at various rates of speed right but um but i think that there have been times when that felt like uh pulling teeth there have been times when it felt like t- complete torture um and but the best times in my life as a writer were sort of times when i um knew that if i showed up um and at the right time, you know, which for me is like in the morning, definitely before 10 a.m. And I had just like a little bit of caffeine. It used to be a triple latte and now it's a, it's a single black tea. <laughs> um, but, uh, but if I did that, that things would happen. Um, and I would, en- I would enjoy it actually. Um, and, and I, you know, I think that the, the enjoyment, um, there, there are two different aspects to it. It's sort of like, can you notice that you're enjoying it? Mm-hmm. I think that I used to just get in the zone and get it done. And then I was like, Hey, I did it. And I like magic, it happened. Um, and, but I never really knew, I didn't always know that it would happen. There were times when it was sort of like, Oh God, I can't, I just can't do it today. And I think that when you have a day where you just can't do it, it can sometimes feel like a bigger failure than just not being able to do it one day because you worry that you won't be able to do it the next day. There's a lot of, it's kind of like, um, being an athlete, there's a lot of paranoia that you're going to lose or or a performer that you're going to lose your thing. You're Mm going to lose your touch. Um, but I, I do think that, um, if you notice that you enjoy it instead of just getting into the zone, like if you get into the zone and you notice while you're in the zone, um, 
I'm an, I, I'm good at this. I enjoy this. You know, this is actually kind of, um, luxurious and, and it's, it, and I just want to savor it. Um, that when you, when you really like increase that connection to the work where you're actually like in it and you're doing it and it doesn't really feel that hard, but you, and you also it doesn't feel that difficult, but you also feel like, God, I'm good at this. It's working. You know? Um, I think that increases your ability to go to that place again. Just like when you say, oh, Jesus, it's not working. If you really fixate on the not workingness of it, which I think actually a lot of successful writers do that. Um, there are plenty of writers who will tell you writing is torture and I hate it, but I like having written something. Um, but I actually think you can attune yourself to enjoy it more and more. Yeah. And, it, and enjoying it more and more makes it easier, in my opinion. Um, but then there's also this thing where, um, you know, you start to understand how um, all the different connections that your brain can make in the right state of mind. And I do think that like, when you say to yourself, I'm good at this, and I love it, those connections kind of increase tenfold. And you can kind of follow connections and have fun with them. I mean, part of this, I am talking about writing nonfiction. This is how I feel when I'm I I think fiction is really hard and and different in some ways. Um, But but also, I just never did it enough to feel the same kind of like, Yay, I'm improvising and it's fun. I you know, I never quite got there with mm-hmm. fiction. Um but but I think that the salvation comes from uh from that last piece of like every time I do this, I access a kind of faith in myself and a faith in my brain's ability to make connections and a faith in my brilliance and a faith in my um in my role also and in, in the, my uh, faith in my ability to put my values onto the page and to s- share them with other people. Um, it's not as much about who will listen and will it be good enough and how will it be judged? Um, which, you know, those things are unavoidable. Eventually when you have a book out, you get reviews, sure. um, people show up to your readings or they don't people, you know, pass your work along or they just ignore it. Um, but but understanding that the default is that you will be ignored and it doesn't add up, you know, in the end that the, that the reactions won't be big enough for you and that really what you mostly have is the work itself. Mm-hmm. Um, it's good to be prepared and to know that because it allows you to, you know, savor the actual day to day act of writing and the and also just the day to day act of living. You know, I mean, part part of being a writer is is just believing in what you observe and how you move through the world and believing in the value of good and bad experience as an artist, you know? And, and so, so part of, if you don't really take that on board and say, this is another thing I get out of writing, um, I get to value, um, my impressions and my experiences and my emotions in a way that it's harder to do, um, if I didn't use them in some way, or that if I didn't, but, but it's not just using them to build something. It's also just being a person who values her own emotions and experience. Um, that's a good way to feel, you know, it's a great, and it's also just, I mean, not there, obviously this isn't a coincidence. It's also a way that women have trouble, you know, it's a place that women have trouble arriving, you know, it's a place that we're told 
we never should arrive, you know, because we shouldn't get there because that would mean that we're doing it wrong, like everything else. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, I, I'm sorry, I'm kind of going on and on, but I just. No, that's wonderful. I just. I, no, I think you're totally right. I mean, that makes, that really resonates with me. I thought about trying to write a book about being, you know, owning the artist identity and owning the writer identity in a deep way in order to sort of feel happy about the good and bad of every moment. Um, and it's, it's like, you know, it's a puzzle how to put that into words and how to make that make other people feel it, because I think it's really a valuable path, um, particularly as a woman in a world that doesn't really accept um, your good and your bad you're good or you're bad. Right. Um, right. It's kind of like being the weird aunt, um, every day of your life and feeling good about being the weirdo aunt, um, you know, feeling good about it and feeling kind of patriotic right. about it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's not a, I don't think, I think an important distinction is that it's, it's not a defensive position, you know, it's not, a, right. it's not actually an aggressive position. It doesn't have to be. It's just, right. it just is. It's like a way of being calm. Actually. It's a way of like, of living in your own skin. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty evangelistic about, um, about that, the, the, the sort of the salvation of the work itself and the, the, the practice of the art uh, of art itself, you know, um, yeah. it matters a yeah. lot to me. It's like the most important, in some ways it's the most important thing I do with my life and some way or, or, or do with any day. And in some ways it's like the way that I'm able to be, a good person and a good mother and a good partner and a good friend. Um, it's like how I get there kind of. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, the last writer that I had on the show, um, is a friend of mine, Kat Gardner, and she is a mother and as well. And she said the same thing. She's like, you know, I had to accept that, like, this is me, me showing up for myself equals me showing up better to the people I'm responsible to. Yeah, totally. And showing up for your art is showing up for yourself, yes. right? And yeah. it's, you know, and, and prioritizing it, especially with kids, um, or, or whatever, with anyone, yeah. with anyone in your life, prioritizing that time and that space is a way of saying, um, you know, I value my own time and I get to enjoy it, uh, in whatever ways I want to, um, which I think is a, actually a radical act for a lot of women, yeah. you know, um, yeah. and a lot of people in general. I mean, I actually think that part of that can be doing something worthless that doesn't add up. Like as someone who has a productivity fetish, like crazy. Yes. Um, sometimes it's really kind of like cleansing right, or healing to do something that's stupid that doesn't add up to anything at all. You know, it's like, I think sometimes people ask me, you know, how do I relax? You know, I don't know how to relax. And it's sort of like, sometimes relaxation is accessed merely by not trying to relax, but just doing something that, seems indulgent to you, yeah. even though it has no purpose whatsoever, you know? Yeah. Um, well, I want to wrap up with um, a question I think we've probably been circling a little bit, uh, but this is something that I ask everybody at the end of our conversations, which is what does creative satisfaction look like for you right now? Um, <laughs> it's a funny question to, to for me, like, as at the moment, because you would think that having a book in your hand that you wrote would kind of be like, okay, you made it, you know, you did it. Right. Um, you know, I'm really proud of this book. 
and I and I I love this book actually. I'm not I'm I'm kind of like unabashedly um unabashedly proud of it. That's great. You uh-huh. should be. Yeah. I I I am. I I think that because there's so much other work around the release of a book, it's hard not to feel a little bit conflicted about that stuff. Sure. Um, um, and so you were saying, what is creative satisfaction? Yeah. I mean, I honestly am trying. I, I, I think that I've moved from caring about big goals and big landmark things like books um, towards caring about just breaking it down on like a day-to-day level and sort of caring about each day as its own um, measurement. And so creative satisfaction for me right now is just a matter of pushing through whatever else I have going on and just starting and finishing a piece of writing, if that makes sense. Like I, I, at the, at the outset, you know, I still do occasionally have like at the faintest, will this really come together? Is this really going to work? And, um, and creative satisfaction is just like, I put what I had onto the page in the, in a very like honest way, you know, I tackled a few ideas and when I read the final product, it's, it feels it's entertaining, you know, like I enjoy rereading it. Um, in fact, I want to reread it over and over again. Like that's when I really know, uh, that I'm, when I'm really happy, I wrote this thing about getting engaged in Europe with my, my first trip to Europe with my husband and how miserable it was. And it was like, my, I've never been so satisfied with a piece of writing before. And part of it was because I was able to write this story that I've been trying to write for like 10 years. Mm. And I just was finally honest enough to be really brutal about it. And it came out in one fell swoop. It was just like, yes, it, you know, I was, and you know, part of it, I think it's just, maybe it's just honesty, like feeling like I can be honest and not hide at all and still make my story entertaining and fun. And, and I don't have to anticipate how people, uh, you know, perceive things. I can just create them the way that they, you know, so that in a way that they make me happy. Right. So I actually would say the short answer is pleasing myself with my work is like creative satisfaction to me now. I don't think that was always the case. I think I used to really wait for the measurement of what other people thought. Oh yeah. It's not like that doesn't have any, that it doesn't come into play at all. But I do think that, um, since I really started to primarily write to please myself, um, my writing has improved a lot, you know? Um, it's great. And it's, it also just, I mean, it's, it's all right there. It makes you happy. You know, when you're, when you're writing stuff that may, that you'd want to read, um, that what more can you ask for? Today's conversation was edited by Phoebe Wang and produced by Courtney Ballastier. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about at WMFAPodcast.com. Have a question or an author you'd love to hear on the show? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com and find me on Twitter and Instagram at CF Ballastier. And writers need feedback. If you're enjoying the show, please take a second to write a review on iTunes. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and the theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Detroit by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.